0: Our sermon text today is John chapter 1 verse 15, kind of as is the case here at Grace Church. Uh, We're not unaccustomed to taking one verse at a time or sometimes one phrase at a time, but we're just going to go slow through what many call the prologue of John, the opening big idea and thought of John, which is really John 1.1 through John 1.18. So we've almost made our way to the end of the prologue, And today's portion is going to be verse 15 and then, Lord willing, after we make our way through verse 18, we'll pick up the pace a bit and we'll see the same themes repeated in John's Gospel that we ran into in this prologue. The title of today's sermon is borrowed from a verse in the Old Testament. And it carries the exact same themes as John 1.15 and that title is, maybe you'll be familiar with this verse, or even if you don't know, you know the verse, maybe you'll be familiar with this phrase. The title of today's sermon is, The High and Exalted One Who Inhabits Eternity. Now that phrase comes from a kind of an obscure Old Testament text in Isaiah chapter 57. It's verse 15 of Isaiah 57 and, and that verse is significant for a lot of reasons. One of them is, it's the single longest, one verse, self-description of God in the entire Bible. The whole Bible's written by God. There are times where it's as if, God takes the quill out of the hand of the human author and writes in the first person, thus saith the Lord, and then he describes himself, hence, self-description. There are gobs of God's self-descriptions. First person biographies of God. Autobiographical verses. The longest of those in any one verse in the whole Bible is As I mentioned, Isaiah 57, 15. Now think about God's description of God. I am the high and exalted one who inhabits eternity. With that in mind, listen to John 1, 15. This is the word of the Lord. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Maybe you already see the connection of the sermon title from Isaiah and the message of John the Baptist, but just to be clear, a higher rank than I, that's the high and exalted one who existed before me. That's the one who inhabits eternity. I'm going to read some other prominent translations, just so we can kind of get the sense of this phrase, uh, this verse, with different phraseology, and then we're going to pray the verse and ask God to help us to worship, believe, and obey the Jesus that's presented in it. Listen to the NIV. Like the ESV and the CSB, the New International Version makes this verse a parenthesis between verses 14 and 16. And the NIV reads this way, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me surpassed me because he was before me the English Standard Version also makes it a parenthetical phrase between verse 14 and 16 and reads this way John bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom I said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me and then the Christian Standard Bible also a parenthetical between 14 and 16 verse 15 in the Christian Standard reads, John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the One of whom I said, the One coming after me, ranks ahead of me, because He existed before me. And then finally, the King James translation, John bare witness of Him, and cried saying, This was He of whom I spake, He that cometh after me is preferred before me for he was before me. Well, with that in mind, join me at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help. I'm going to give you just a very brief moment to ask God to help you privately, silently in your heart, and then I'll close our prayer. Father, by Your Spirit, would You illumine Your Word to our souls so that we may see the eternal nature of the Lord Jesus. And upon that basis, submit and yield ourselves to Him as the greatest priority in the universe, not only our life, but in every aspect of everything, may Christ have preeminence. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. You may have heard this line before. You do what you do because you believe what you believe. That is true. But if you were to read the Bible and just press that same phrase through a biblical lens, it would sound more like this. Not only does every person live the way they live because they believe what they believe. That is true. But biblically speaking, it is more precise to say, You do what you do because of what you believe about Jesus. Now do you see how this verse works that way? There's a ground and then there's a consequence. There's a root and there's a fruit. Do you see it in the verse? Because John the Baptist believed that Jesus existed before him, that's the ground, John the Baptist therefore demanded that Jesus have first place in his life. Now notice that John says, because he existed before me, therefore he has a higher rank than me. But notice a little nuance in this verse where John the writer says that John the Baptist previously said this. This was he of whom I said. So what John the writer is telling us is there's a moment in the ministry of John the Baptist where after preaching for some time, John the Baptist has the crowds out by the Jordan River and people are coming to him from everywhere and he's baptizing and he's commanding everybody to repent, bear fruit and keeping with repentance, so on and so forth. And then there came a time where Jesus showed up and John specifies, John the Baptist and John the writer tells us that John the Baptist specified could you imagine me doing this right now? Now I know we've met here for 13 years, some of us as Grace Church, but uh that guy's the one I've been talking about the whole time that's verse 15 this is the one of whom I said he who existed before me uh, he has a higher rank than me because he existed before me so I just wanna make sure everybody has the idea of the verse in mind let's do just a little more detail work of the verse I want you to look at words in the verse And then we're just going to back up and say two things about it. If it's any consolation to those of you who are tired and have had a long week and are, you know, I love it. We said something about it at the members meeting, trying to wrangle the kids because we're not offering nursery during Corona. You are so welcome. You are so, we are so happy that you are here and didn't say, oh, it's so stinking hard to go to church and no nursery. We're so glad you're here. We're going to help. Any way we can help, we're going to try to help. So that's like. You, you're all, job. I have a job right now and you're all job, just help. But I want you to see the details of the verse. I want to say two things about it and here's the consolation prize for you at the beginning. It's the least amount of notes I've ever brought into the pulpit in the history of Grace Church. I'm not promising how long or short it's going to be but I am saying I think it might be shorter you can throw tomatoes at me after if it's not but I don't want to say a lot. I'm praying that God will say something substantial by the Holy Spirit to your hearts, to mine. The details of the verse, look at it. John testified about him. That's the way the New American Standard puts it. That's John the Baptist. Well, that word testified, if you have the New American Standard, has a little asterisk on the word testified which is the translator's way of telling you, and some of your translations just put it this way, it's a continual present. It's a present tense word. John the writer is saying John testifies present tense about him. Here's the very important detail you need to know about that word, testified. John the Baptist had his head cut off many, many, many years before John the writer wrote this sentence. And he had his head cut off because he wouldn't back down from the lordship of Jesus as his message to the small and to the great. And as we've already talked about, because John the Baptist put his callous finger in Herod's face and said, you are living in sin against the only God because you have a woman who is not supposed to be your wife. That's what he said to the king. The consequence was, through a little manipulative tactic of that woman, using her daughter in a prostituting sort of way, convinced her husband, how dirty is this, to be seduced by her daughter so that she could have John's head cut off for saying she was an adulteress. Many years after that, John the writer said, John the Baptist testifies. He's still speaking like Abel, though he's dead. You may have cut his head off, but you can't stop his mouth from telling you the truth. So that's the word testifies. I want you to focus in on the word in the NAS that says cries or cried out. Verse 15 says, John testified about him and cried out. Now here's some important detail. Kekra this is very Loud cry. The lexical range of this word is to be taken in other contexts, both biblical and extra-biblical resources from the time that John wrote this word. People would have heard he is boldly, openly proclaiming. He is unashamed in his proclamation. He is not cowering. There is no subtlety. He is direct. He is clear. And as we'll see in the verse, he is Christ-centered. So, present tense, John the Baptist isn't whispering to you. He may not be raising his voice, but he is crystal clear to you. It's not cry like tears. It's cry like proclaim. So that's the next detail I wanted you to see. And then finally, with that detail in view, what did John the Baptist, present tense, continue to cry out? in the wilderness. Well, verse 15 is a summary of his entire Christology, his understanding, his belief system about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a consequence and then there's a cause of that consequence. That's the order John the writer gives it to us. So let's look at what John it did and then let's look at why he did it. The consequence and then the cause. The consequence of having a true sight of Christ that's number one now I gotta just pause here not because I don't think many of you are listening but I do fear that some might not be because I sit in your seat also and I know how easy it is to zone out and five minutes later zone back in and you don't even have a clue what in the world you know contextually is going on this is a really good moment to zone in This is a what-if sermon. This is a what-if you and I were captured by the true Jesus. We're about to be told the consequence of that what-if. Particularly, what if you and I were captivated by the eternal nature of Christ? What type of dent, what mark, what impression would it leave in our life? What if we were consumed by the reality that we, many, most, maybe all, would say we believe about the eternal nature of our Redeemer? That the one who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, that's John the Baptist sermon, is also the eternal God who has forever existed. What would that do to you? I'm not asking what would you think. I'm asking how would you live. That's the what if nature of this sermon. The answer is in the verse. What would a full surrender entirely of your whole person all your dreams and aspirations for tomorrow all your resources that are in your possession today, every relationship you have, everything, what would a full surrender to the Lordship of Jesus in every arena of your life look like? John the Baptist is a test case. He's a sinner like you and I. He was saved by the Lamb to whom He pointed and concerning whom He preached. But here's the consequence of having a true sight of Christ by faith. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. Now it may sound like just a simple phrase and we all may be thinking, why did you give that big lead in to that phrase? Because all who have truly encountered the Lord Jesus by faith have an inevitable consequence happen to them Namely, an esteem for the Lord Jesus that demands He have absolute priority. Once you see Jesus by faith, once you receive Him as your only hope of all of God's favor in life and in death, I'm saying once you're truly biblically saved, one evidence of that one consequence that's our word for the first point is you will be like even if your experience is not identical experience doesn't save jesus saves you will be like the apostle paul who on the road to damascus saw the brilliant light of christ and once you see who he is you cannot unsee him for who he is because john the baptist by the eye of faith, saw the eternal nature of Jesus, that's the cause, we'll get there in a minute, he therefore said, Hail Christ. Praise Jesus. Worship Jesus. Obey Jesus. The reason John the Baptist was dead to the fear of man, and we're all tempted by the fear of man, is because he had a greater fear of Jesus. Jesus. A holy, healthy fear. The negative way to put what I've just been trying to say is something like this. Now I want you to examine your faith. Nobody has the ability to relegate Jesus to a back corner of his or her life. If he or she has had a true sight of Christ by faith, He cannot not ooze his aroma into every part of your life. If you call yourself a Christian, but have sectioned off gigantic swaths, portions of your life, your heart, where Jesus cannot come, you've drawn the line in the sand, you can come this far but no further the flood of His Lordship, His all-satisfying sufficiency of grace, His presence, His Godness, cannot touch those arenas of your life, then in what sense is He your Lord or in what sense are you His? It sounds to me like you're under the delusion that you're in charge of Him, not the other way around. And what I'm saying is there was a consequence in John the Baptist's life. He must have top priority. He must increase. I must decrease. These are non-negotiables, and that is the consequence. John the Baptist would insist from his personal experience by faith of the Lord Jesus, he has a higher rank than me. Now that little phrase in verse 15, he has a higher rank than me, means, you know, in the most wooden, literal, simple, direct sense, top priority. So what would that look like? You do his bidding. That's what it looks like. What does it look like for a lower ranking officer to recognize the rank of a higher ranking officer in the military? You do what they say. Isn't that eerily similar to the way Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Luke when he said in verse 46 of Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Clearly, the Lord Jesus is saying, You're using terminology of Lordship, but you're treating me as if you're the Lord in the relationship. The old saying is true. You do not make Jesus Lord. I don't make him Lord of my life. He is Lord. We simply submit to that reality when we become a Christian. The question is not, do you assign to Jesus a high priority in your life? The question is, do you submit to the reality that God has assigned to Jesus already without calling a conference to ask our opinion that he is of the highest possible rank and dignity? That's why the Bible on repeat says things like, seated at the right hand. We're talking parallel dignity, parallel authority, equal in majesty. Jesus is of the highest rank. Without even contemplating, consulting you or me, God the Father said of God the Son in the second Psalm, I have installed my king upon my mountain. And when anybody tries to make war against God... Not just any one individual, but any nation or all nations combined and all humans of all nations in all of human history combined. If anybody tries to make war against God's king, the Lord Jesus, the one of highest rank, Psalm 2 tells us God just laughs. He finds it humorous. So commenting on this phrase, he was before me, therefore he has higher rank than me, Leon Morris says this means he's my chief. Could you imagine a tribal culture? Many of you have been to places where there are still to this day tribal cultures. I'm reminded even now of multiplied experiences like that in South Asia and North Africa where in order to be permitted to preach in an entirely Islamic village we had to be granted permission by the priests and I say had to in human terms. And so this chief, you know, kind of dictates what happens in his domain. One time when I was in Uttar Pradesh, North India, over kind of near the Nepalese border, just south of the Himalayas, beautiful part of God's world. One of our missionary friends, co-laborers, faithful family was there, a young husband and wife, three precious little daughters. And they were experiencing all sorts of hardships. Uh, They were not, you know, they were mysteriously not granted permission to rent an apartment. I mean, just gobs and gobs, a little passive persecution kind of things. And they were in a hard time. And then a faithful brother uh, from whom this young man missionary sought counsel told the young man, I don't care how hard it is. You go learn the language. You wrestle that bear to the ground. I don't care if you have to sleep outside You know, he didn't cut him any slack. He said, God sent you there and you're going to speak to them in their mother tongue. You're going to preach Jesus to them in their language in a way that they almost can't detect that you're not a native speaker. And so for the next three years, he wrestled that bear to the ground is what he told me. in blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of agonizing, headache inducing, long hours, tutors, books, you know, linguistics, everything, syntax, just trying to learn Hindi. And when I had the honor of visiting with he and his family, and he was actually in the early days of wrestling that bear to the ground. He said, I, I asked him a question, the same question I ask all my non-English speaking friends. How do you say Jesus is Lord in your mother tongue? And I can't remember or pronounce to you the phrase that he told me that is the Hindi version of Jesus is Lord, but I asked that phrase so that wherever i met in that culture, I can just, you know, m- do some measure of evangelism. But he said, well, here's the phrase, da-da-da-da-da, and here's what it means. And it made me think of this verse. It means Heil Christ. Hail Christ. You know the German, German regime. You know the Heil Hitler. You know the people doing allegiance to a demigod. You know what that led to. And in, in some languages, mother tongue, Jesus' is Lord means salute Jesus. That's what they hear. That's what John the Baptist is saying. His rank is of infinite proportion beyond me. This phrase turns the attention of John the Baptist preaching from Christ eternality to his significance in John's life and do you notice the nuance in this little verse I know it's a little one but there's so much gold here John the Baptist didn't ask him who else is gonna agree with him he's saying this is the place Christ has in my heart and if the whole world goes to hell in a handbasket he has highest rank for me he's my priority He gets preeminence in every area of my life. And as we say around here often, it's a glorious thing to be the same person everywhere you go. You don't shift and change like a chameleon based on your environment and context. You're just the same because Christ is your Lord always. It's important for us to understand that because of the culture in which John wrote and John the Baptist preached, And the pendulum has swung so far, almost the entirely opposite direction in our culture. It's hard to understand this prioritization focus in verse 15 on Christ from John the Baptist. We don't naturally just get this verse when we read it because we live in an aquarium and we don't even know we're a fish in water that doesn't think the way. The New Testament culture would have heard verses like this or understood a context like this, a cultural norm. In Jesus's day was respect for older elderly anybody who came before you automatically got respect from you and wouldn't our current culture in the modern West take light year leaps forward if younger generations would simply respect older generations that's why John the Baptist says he who comes after me has a higher rank than me he's showing the total flip the paradigm shift of the cultural norm leon moore said in antiquity john's day it was widely held that chronological priority meant superiority so john people would have expected him to say well i came six months before jesus so i'm actually just a little more significant john says the opposite he came after and he's more important. Morris goes on, people were humble about their own generation and really thought that their fathers were wiser than they. Incredible as this may sound to our generation, Morris concluded. And D.A. Carson writing about the same thing, about that prioritization of older perceiving them as wiser. Carson says, in all four gospels, Jesus entered public ministry after John the Baptist. In a society where age and precedence bestowed peculiar honor, That might have been taken by superficial observers to mean John the Baptist was greater than Jesus. Not so, insists the Baptist. Jesus has surpassed him because he was before him. It works like this, although Jesus was born six months after John the Baptist, Jesus was younger, he was nonetheless in every way, rank and existence, superior, surpassing John the Baptist. One quick application, then we'll go to our final consideration. Before God saved me, around the time I was a senior in high school, and I was significantly interested, as in like two and a half years, of significantly interested in my now precious wife, Tracy. So two and a half years, we're high school sweethearts, so starting after ninth grade, uh, more on than off, but on and off through college. Um, so to know her, I had to know her family. And that's the way it ought to work. And so I, I did know her family and, and had, even then, tremendous respect for them. That's only increased through the years. But, but her dad, in so many, many ways, is precisely the kind of man I want to be. I aspire to be. And so as a senior in high school, maybe with ulterior motives for Tracy, but I think some semblance of sincerity, I asked him if he would disciple me. I didn't know I was unconverted. I had some sincere spiritual interest. I would have called myself a Christian. And so he said, sure, come to my office. Wednesdays when you get out of class, and we'll meet until church that evening. And so we did that and he took me through the Psalms, and he took me through Jeremiah. He took me through one or two of the Gospels. He had had me memorize passages. And I can remember, even as an unconverted person, having categories at least strengthened, if not forged, of respect. But then, freshman in college, fast forward about a year, when God saved me, Something happened that I didn't even realize happened until it had played itself out multiple times. God saves me around March of 1996. I come home for spring break and I find that man, Rick Couples, on purpose. This is late March 1996. He's sitting in his car, old station wagon, under a shade tree in a parking lot in West Memphis. I walk up to him, tap on his window, he rolls it down, he's reading his Bible. And I, I said something to this effect. The Lord has saved me. Would you please consider discipling me? I really believe the Lord's hand is in it. And the reason I remember that last phrase almost exactly, if not exactly that way, I believe the Lord's hand is in it, is Rick said to me, I don't want his hand. I want his face. And so um, Rick And Steve, Tracy's dad, invested in me. And then this is when I started to realize something clicked and it was just becoming an impulse. Two months later, a month and a half later, the Lord introduced me to the man who for the next five years, the last five years of his life, would be a weekly discipler, if not more frequently than that. So what I'm trying to say to you, and I'm taking the risk of of positive personal example here, which is very, you know, sometimes unwise, nobody ever not one time to this day ever 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 tapped me on my shoulder and said it would be a good idea to go get to know the God who loves you so much one of the expressions that came out of a desire for Jesus was obviously reading his word but also pursuing older people who could invest in me so we said at the members meeting Sunday night, and I'm saying it now because most of you weren't there and you weren't supposed to be there. We said to all of our adult members, start praying now about discipling some younger people in this church. Every teenager, let's go after them with God's word. You pray about it, you go do it. We're not going to assign it, just pray about it. And we shared some examples of how God's already up to that and has been many, many, many times. Now I'm going to say it the other way. At the risk of using myself as a positive example, do, do what I did. Go knock people's door down. Go bang on their window when they're sitting in their car under a shade tree. Go to their office like Clyde. Go to their office like I did Steve. Just go to people who you know walk with Jesus and say, would you pour into me? Beat their door down and get them to help you. John the Baptist is using the opposite to say, that's what he, the older, is doing for Jesus, the younger. I have to have him in my life. And that would have caused people to have category confusion because of the age difference, John being older than Jesus, but Jesus existing before him eternally. John said, No, I have, he must increase in my life. And he would do anything necessary to get the true Jesus in his life. And I'm saying to our young people, Are you in a discipling relationship where somebody is pouring into you? Your parents, we assume that's happening. Maybe in addition to that, you should initiate. Would you just teach me how to walk with Jesus? One of the sweet people in the church, a team of six, are currently helping me with sermon development uh, for the next several weeks. And prior to this week, one of the sweet sisters who's helping said, think about this. John the Baptist, we're told in Luke 176, is a prophet of the highest rank or honor. But Jesus is... Luke 1.32, the Son of the Almighty, the Highest God, She writes, John the Baptist was a minister and messenger of the new covenant, Malachi 3, but Jesus is the mediator and master of the new covenant, 1 Timothy 1. John the Baptist baptized with water, Matthew 3. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire, Matthew 3.11. John preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark 1. Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why John the Baptist was saying, he has to have preeminence in every aspect of my life why would he say such a thing this is our last point I have half a page of notes here you go here's why we've already dealt with it multiplied times in the prologue the consequence we've said of having a true sight of Christ is he must have first place in your whole life and in your heart but what's the cause The cause for the consequence of having a true side of Christ is seeing His essential nature. Verse 15. Why must He be of higher rank than me? Verse 15 says, For, Hati, because He existed before me. The second half of the statement is the ground, the cause, for the first half of the statement. He existed before me. Therefore, he has to have the place of highest honor. Because he's God, I can't treat him like he's not. The portion of the verse harkens back to verse 1, he existed before me, where we find John opening his, in, his gospel by looking at the eternal nature of the Logos, the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was John the Baptist's successor, if you will, in time, but he was his superior in rank and existence? Leon Moore said Jesus was not only former to John the Baptist, but he is first. The pre-existence of Jesus shows his superiority. My successor has taken precedence over me because he preceded me. I'm just saying if you see what the angels saw and currently see, That Jesus is the one who was and who is and who is to come. Do you hear eternality? If you and I see what they see, Revelation 4.11, He was, He is, and He is to come, then you'll do what they do. And what do they do? They praise Him ceaselessly. When we see that Jesus is who He is, that He is God from everlasting, we're going to agree with Westcott, a Greek scholar who's helped produce for us a a bound copy of the Greek New Testament, a.k.a. he knows his stuff, when he said he existed before me, has this emphasis, quote, he has a higher rank than me, not only meaning he deserves relative priority in my life, he's more important than John the Baptist, yeah, and a few other people, but, quoting Westcott, an absolute priority no one else is even close. So Jesus isn't first in the top ten of your life. He's first in every single area of your life. He's first in your finances. He's first in your marriage. He's first in your parenting. He's first in your work ethic. He's first in your desires. He's first in your aspirations, your dreams, your hopes, your education, every relationship you've got. He's first in the way you relate to lost people. He's first in what you watch, what you listen to. Why? Because He's God. That's John's point. And you don't get options for where else to file Jesus in your order of importance list. One of the other sisters that's helping with the sermon development team wrote this application. John understood and knew who Jesus was. Therefore, John the Baptist bore witness to him. And then she writes in very convicting fashion, if I know him, then I'll witness to who Jesus is too. John the Baptist understood that he himself was an unworthy sinner in need of the Lamb of God. Do you know him that way? This is a, an astonishing reality, friends. Remember John the Baptist ate locust and wild honey? <laughs> Isn't that kind of funny? He wore camel's hair and a leather belt. This guy looked Odd. But I can imagine if you're out there trying to get a sufficient number of calories in your daily diet and your protein is comprised of a bunch of cicadia, <laughs> some locusts, you're probably going to every tree in you know the area trying to pull these bad boys off or find them only to find that most of them are just the little husk shell kind of things that have already molted and gone on elsewhere. But I can only imagine that if he's got his bushel basket full of locusts dead carcass bugs and he's going to sit down under a shade tree and have a big lunch that after pilling a couple hundred of these bad boys he probably has some pretty calloused fingers and can you imagine john the baptist standing out by the bank of the jordan river Second verse, same as the first, a bunch of prideful, spiritually self-righteous Pharisees showing up in their big garb. they got their big like, uh, coffee table, grandma, big print Bible in their arms, and they're coming out there all puffed up with self-importance, and John the Baptist says, you're a brood of vipers. If you don't repent, you're going to perish. Bring forth, forth fruit and keep repentance. I can imagine that day after day after day of that, and then... One day, the Lord Jesus shows up in the middle of the crowd, and John is hitting his stride again in the middle of his sermon. You're all going to hell when you die. All the Old Testament prophets prophesied about you. You killed those who prophesied truth to you. You sacrificed the blood of the prophets between the porch and the altar. I can just hear him out there preaching, grabbing passage after passage after passage, and then up walks the Lord Jesus in the middle of his sermon. His jaw drops. His callous finger that had been pilling those locusts and pointing at those self-righteous people turns to Jesus in the middle of that big old crowd, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they would have understood that the same Old Testament he used to rebuke them was the same resource he was referencing when he called Jesus the Lamb of God. Could you imagine just a few dozen miles away over in Jerusalem that those people who were standing by that riverbank hearing John preach that sermon had just left the temple a few hours earlier and took their little leisurely afternoon walk to go hear this man with his hair on fire preach again. But what were they doing in that temple before they walked across the wilderness to go hear John preach his little entertainment for for the day to them? They were sacrificing lambs in that temple on that day. And then they show up and they hear John the Baptist say, no, 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 no. That's my lamb. That's my Savior. That's my sacrifice. That's the one who atones for my sin. He existed from eternity and though He be God, He gave His own blood or will for my redemption. Therefore, He must have the highest priority in my life. What kind of fools do we think we are to put Jesus' little back closet of our life and call ourselves, in any semblance of the sense of the word, Christian. Now, we're all woefully negligent in who we want to be. But you know, That Lamb of God died for all the times that we failed to give Him the highest priority. All the times that we've tried to relegate Him to a corner of our life. All the times that we've cowered, unlike John the Baptist, and not spoken out of Him because we cared what other people thought about us. All the times when we're with little people, we can say bold things, but when we stand before the Herods of our life, we just shrink back in fear. He died for that too. And He'll forgive us of that too. And He'll empower us and change us so that we can say, under the cross, and under the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, He must increase. He must increase. I must decrease. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that for Your glory, in the most full sense of what you mean to convey to us about the message of John the Baptist that it would also be said of us he who comes chronologically in our case he came before us he must have a higher rank this is a necessity this is not up for debate there's no compromise He has to have the place of highest honor, Lord. Please let it be so, Holy Spirit, because He is the Eternal One. Grant us a fresh sight of Jesus time and time again so that the life of Jesus, Galatians 2.20, will be lived through us. The One who loved us and gave Himself up for us. Oh, cause His life to be lived through us. We pray in Jesus' name.